0: Thank you to Ms. Marlene. Thank you for our musicians and kids. We once again express our gratitude to our choir for leading us in worship this morning. I don't know if they're in the room or what, but can we say thank you with uh, another expression of our appreciation to them. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Daniel and Ms. Juanita for all those who are involved. I'd love for you to turn in your scriptures again to John chapter 8. As you are turning, I'm going allow our kids' children's church age to be dismissed to children's church at this time, and we're going to come back into John chapter 8, and we're going to pick up from last week, verses 37 and 38, and then go forward to verse 47. Our kids are really excited about Children's Church, Mary Ann, this morning, so uh, congratulations on that. Are you as excited to hear God's word as those Children's Church kids are? All right. Let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in John 8, verse 37, and go through verse 47. The Word of God. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words. There is so much in here. And Lord, I pray for those under the sound of my voice in this room, on Facebook, on the radio, to be people who hear the words of God, who recognize the truthfulness of who Jesus is, and who has or will have God as their father. And for those right now who does not hear the word of God and the voice of Jesus, Lord, I pray that hearts would be changed. So may your people love your word. May we be people who love and exalt Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Now, you might be asking, what does this text have to do with Advent? Christmas is supposed to be tranquil, right? Full of silent nights, cozy fires, hot chocolate, and sweet words. Christmas isn't divisive. Or is it? Now before you're wondering, did he hear about our last Christmas dinner at our house? That's not the kind of divisive that I specifically mean. Jesus' incarnation was for the purpose of saving people. But because of his claim to be Lord, meaning he's the only Lord, his life brings division. We see him spell this out in Matthew chapter 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Christmas is about Jesus. And most everyone around Christmas time is good with eggnog and, and maybe enjoying some Christmas movie Most everybody likes to give and get gifts, but the very reason for this holiday that our nation observes and so many other nations observe is that Jesus came to save sinners. So the question is, is the gospel true, and is it of most significance? I watched a Christmas movie this week, and the children were investigating whether the The Santa part of it was true. That's a distracting question to investigate. It's not the main point. The question is, is the Jesus story real and is it true? So much so that in our text today, the Jesus can say the person who believes in Jesus has God as his father and the person who rejects Jesus does not belong to God. There's division, right there. In our text, Jesus does not shy away from the division that his very life brings, but he leans into it. His words are blunt. About a year ago, Stanford University released its Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative to dismiss harmful language, to show its negative impact, and to to suggest alternative words. Now, most of that is just silly. Let me give you an example. One of the harmful words listed on this initiative is the word lame. Now, if you looked at the list, you might say, that whole list is lame. And by lame, you would mean the. out of touch, not real cool. But here's how the initiative defines why lame is so harmful. It says, it's ableist language that can trivialize the experience of people living with disabilities. Now, I don't know of anybody who would use the word lame to mean anything negative about those with disabilities. Furthermore, I don't know of any person with disabilities who would hear the word lame in virtually any setting, and be offended. I think this is a document that goes uh, so far to show how the language police on so many university campuses are trying to have only just the most politically correct language. Well, if you look at our text, Jesus is not using politically correct language. He says... To the most religious people in the nation who think they love and serve God, you are of your father, the devil. You can just imagine how that would go over with them. It must be a shock to think that you please God and are serving God, but instead you're told that you belong to God's enemy, the devil, and that you will to do the devil's desires. We'll see these Jews are infuriated by that. So why would Jesus say it? Why not just keep the peace? Jesus is showing, as the Bible shows repeatedly, there are only two ways in this life. Two ways and only two ways. You either know God or you don't. Now let's back up and look at this some in Scripture. In Joshua chapter 24... Joshua is making this case for the two ways. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You serve the Lord or you don't. The first psalm speaks to these two ways. And that first psalm is really setting the stage for the rest of them as we... Come to the conclusion of that psalm in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two ways, righteousness or wicked, those who know God, those who don't. Jesus himself has already taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Narrow gate to destruction, or, or wide gate leading to destruction, narrow gate leading to life. So these are the two and only two ways. And that, have not, that has not changed in the two millennia since we have this New Testament written. You either know God or you don't. And there is one way to know God. And that is through our union with Jesus Christ. So there's a showdown here in our text. It is between Jesus, the one sent from God, and these Jews who reject him. And their debate focuses on who their father is. Central to that, though, is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 37, Jesus says, You are offspring of Abraham. And then in two verses after that, he'll deny that they are actually Abraham's children. So what is going on there? Did Jesus change his mind in two short verses? Absolutely not. He has two different meanings in mind when he says this. In verse 37, what he means is, they are of Abraham's bloodline. In other words, they're physically descended from, from abraham now, there was a common belief among the jews and this is illustrated in a second century debate between a christian a defender of the faith named justin martyr and a jew a jewish man named Trypho. and here's what Trypho said and i think we can read into this the mindset of many jews in that day and in jesus's day he said this the eternal kingdom Will be given to those who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, even though they be sinners and unbelievers and disobedient to God. In other words, he's saying all we have to be is of Abraham's physical lineage and God is good with us. And what Jesus is saying is just the opposite. Just Physical descent means nothing in terms of are you rightly related to God. Jesus says in verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. This idea of physical parentage, meaning you're right with God, Jesus debunks. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary gave a fascinating Physical lineage of Jonathan Edwards from a study done by A.E. Winship. He said, "If let me get if you're if you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, uh, one of the, the probably the best theologian in American history, uh, great pastor, one of the most brilliant minds America has ever had. He was the first president of Princeton. Jonathan was married to Sarah." And from their line, as this man traced out, came 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, a dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 doctors, a dean of a medical school, and 80 people who held public office, among them three U.S. senators. So somebody just traced son or children, grandchildren on down the line and saw this. That is a wildly impressive list, isn't it? But there's a descendant in that line who gained more notoriety than actual fame. Jonathan Edwards' grandson was Aaron Burr. Now, Aaron Burr killed his political rival, Alexander Hamilton, in a duel. And he was later arrested for treason. Now, that's Jonathan Edwards, who I think is the greatest theological mind in American history. That's his grandson. So clearly... Genetics don't determine one's character. And genetics don't determine our spiritual destiny either. A missionary grandparent is a great legacy. But it doesn't mean you jump the line to heaven. Having parents who believe is a tremendous blessing But it doesn't mean you get a free pass to heaven. I think believing ancestors, parents, grandparents are a great blessing to children. I hope the children in this room grow up in a home where dad and mom love Jesus, take their kids to church, they're discipling them actively. But just having believing parents or grandparents doesn't get us into heaven. Jesus is blowing up that argument of the Jewish leaders here it's not just being Abraham's descendants that's going to get you to know God and their response is after this in verse 39 Abraham is our father that's their hope now Jesus is going to push back against that yes he said they're of Abraham's physical lineage but are they truly like Abraham. And he says, if they were, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Well, then we should ask, what works did Abraham do that they don't do? Well, in verse 40, they seek to kill Jesus. And he describes himself as a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Now, how different they are from Abraham. In Genesis 18, God sent to Abraham three Messengers and he doesn't reject them. He doesn't try to kill them. He welcomes them. They came from God He's thrilled Now those claiming Abraham as their father here in John chapter 8. Jesus comes from God. He speaks the truth of God and Those who claim to be Abraham's children far from welcoming Jesus want to kill him There's no chance that you walk away from this text and think, you know what, these Jews, they sound like friends of Jesus. You know, they probably went out and grabbed some lunch after this, maybe hit up a coffee shop. They, they are opposed to Jesus, they don't like Jesus. They're certainly not friends of Jesus. Why bring that out? Well, Abraham was described as a friend of God. In Isaiah chapter 41, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, The offspring of Abraham, my friend. So Abraham was a friend of God. Unlike Abraham, these Jews aren't friends of Jesus. God who has come in the flesh, they want to kill him. What else do we know about Abraham? Well, Abraham loved God, wanted to please him. In Genesis 26, 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Abraham was seeking to be obedient to God, which should be the fruit of every follower of God's life, including ours. And if there's no fruit, we can question, well, does that person belong to God? We see in Luke 3.8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So clearly, as the argument is for these Jews that they are Abraham's children, Abraham's their father, they're not doing what Abraham did. Well, in verse 41, Jesus says, You are doing the works your father did. Now, here again is another reference to their father. And they never stop to ask, Jesus, who are you saying our father is? Who do you think it is? Now, I'm guessing... Part of the reason they didn't ask is they don't want his opinion about it. But they never do bring it up. What do they do? They respond with what might be an insult to Jesus. We were not born of sexual immorality. Now, there may have been questions about the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. And right here, as we're eight days away from Christmas, we should reaffirm the doctrine of the virginal conception of Jesus. We just believe that is true, that that is how God sent His Son into the world to be born of a woman. Now, I don't want you to have heard that all your life and become inoculated to how big of a deal it is. May we let the wonder of God becoming flesh astound us. Andrew Wilson, in his book, Incomparable, spells this out to some degree. He asks, how could the transcendent God become so imminent? How was spirit now a body? How could someone so holy become so humble? To this day, the incarnation, far more than the crucifixion or resurrection, is the biggest problem Jews and Muslims have with the gospel. So these Jews should have been astounded that God sent his son through a virgin. And yet... They don't see it, or they see it and just reject it. They insult Jesus, and then they do something else. They make an incredible claim. They shift who their father is. Remember, they have have held on to Abraham as our hope. Now look what they do. We have one father, even God. That's a bold claim. Is it true? And Jesus says, you don't meet the main criterion. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, Jesus says, you would love me. I'm confident that answer rubbed them the wrong way. And to this day, church, that answer rubs people the wrong way. The culture in which we live will affirm basically any generic belief in an ambiguous God that anybody has. You can believe in many gods. You can believe in no gods. You can create your own God. You can make yourself God. And our society says, no problem, That's fine. But here's what will bring ridicule. It is believing that the only way to the one holy God is through Jesus Christ and faith in his perfect work on the cross. Now let me ask you, church, are we really bold enough to believe that is true? Are we bold enough to say that no matter what our culture says that no matter if our culture says just be good and you're fine are we really confident enough in the gospel to say the only real test of whether someone truly knows god is by how they respond to jesus and church i believe we are that bold and we are that confident because it is true These men that Jesus speaks to here, they're not pagans. They're the most religious guys in Jerusalem. They really think they know God. William Barclay says of them, they were in the terrible position of men who were godlessly serving God. So it all centers around Jesus. And Jesus is unique. He is so important that no matter how good you and I try to be on our own, no matter how good these guys are at quoting the Old Testament, no matter how much they say they belong to Jesus or to God, if they reject Jesus, they have no claim to have God as their Father. Here's how Jesus describes His uniqueness here. I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like incarnation. Sounds like God became flesh. And it sounds like God became flesh for a purpose. Jesus came to do something. He entered our world of sin and suffering so that we could be delivered from our own sin and from death. And it's just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago when he said it to these guys. The person who doesn't love Jesus is still dead in their sins, and they are apart from God. Since they don't love him, indeed, since they reject him, he finally states explicitly what he's hinted at before throughout this text. He finally tells them exactly who their father is. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, Jesus does not say, God is not your father, and you're just in a neutral position. He says they belong to the devil. Now, what is his reasoning? And he gives two reasons. He talks about the murderer that the devil is and the liar that the devil is. How is the devil a murderer? We think back, we were in Genesis 2 this morning. We were in the Garden of Eden, this perfect world. But there's a Genesis 3 coming, right? And in Genesis 3, what we have is the devil showing up and tempting Adam and Eve to sin, and that sin brings death. Here's how Romans 5:12 puts it. "Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned." So the devil is a murderer in terms of tempting towards sin. Well, how are these guys? How is Jesus saying they're they're like Satan in terms of murder? The greatest gift in all of human history is God taking on human flesh and coming in the world for the purpose of saving sinners. And these people have that gift right in front of them. And what is their desire? Let's kill him. He needs to die. So they want to kill the Son of God who could rescue them from death that they deserve and give them spiritual life. This is so irrational, isn't it? Well, the second thing is Satan is a liar. And he's so opposed to the truth that lying is his native language. It's his heart language just to lie. Again, we were in Genesis 2 this morning. God tells the first couple, if they eat of this tree, his words, you will surely die. That's in Genesis 2. In the very next chapter, Genesis 3, what does Satan tell them? You will not surely die. So this first couple has a choice to make. Who is lying? They made the wrong choice. Satan is lying. So much so in verse 44 He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So how are these people in John 8 like Satan in his lying ways? And how are people today who reject Jesus like that? If you listen carefully as we read, truth appears, I think, five times. The word truth five times in the text that we read this morning. And we can go back to verse 32 that we preached on last week, where Jesus says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And these people look at truth incarnate, truth embodied, the way, the truth, and the life, and they say, He's a fraud. He's not God in the flesh. That's how much they believe in lies. So he's asked them a question. I see two things in here that are fascinating, not so much in a good way. Jesus asks in verse 42, Why do you not understand what I say? Now when Jesus asks questions, he's not seeking to gain information. He knows the answer. And he gives them the reason. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They could physically hear him, but that truth that he gives doesn't move from their ears and to their hearts. They don't hear that he's the one sent from the Father to make a way for sinners to be reconciled with the holy God. Here's how much they hate the truth. I don't want you to miss verse 45. Jesus says, "But because I tell you the, sorry, but because I tell the truth." You do not believe in me. This is not. Just leave that up there for a minute if you will Zach. This isn't just. I tell you the truth. And you don't believe me. As commentators point out. It's not although I tell you the truth. You do not believe me. I want you to see there's a cause there. Why do they not believe Jesus? And it's because he tells them the truth. Now, we would think it's just the opposite, right? We would think, because I tell the truth, you do believe me. But it's because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. John's purpose in writing this gospel is so that truth would lead to believing. John 20, 31. This is the purpose statement of the gospel. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But here, Jesus says to them, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. So let's put put this just in kind of modern physical terms, not anything to do with divinity, but let's just say uh, you're, you're, you're watching the news. A meteorologist is saying a hurricane is coming. There's no doubt about it. You, you need, he's saying, you need to get out of town. So he's giving truth for the purpose of action, flee. So it'd be like hearing that and saying, oh, I've heard the truth. I'm going to stay and I'm going to go fishing in the ocean. It's not that it didn't hear the truth. It's an absolute rejection of that truth. So you take that, that's, this is even bigger deal right here. Their their hearts are so hard to God's truth that Jesus tells them the truth. Their hearts are hardened and they don't believe. I think we have to wonder, what in the world, right? What do we do with God's truth? Why do they not believe? I think we get the answer in Really, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you not hear them is that you are not of God. We can go to Romans 1. Paul tells us two things we do in our sin with God's truth. When we're rebelling against God, he gives us two things we do. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth doesn't mean truth isn't true, but in our sin we want to suppress it. And then if you go a little farther down in that chapter in verses 24 and 25, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator is blessed forever. So they have suppressed the truth, they exchanged the truth. So here is... Jesus speaking the truth, and for that they don't believe. You might say, what does that look like? Well, in, a, in another state, there was a time when I was trying to witness to a guy about the gospel. I think he was an adult. And I think uh, at least one of his sisters had come to faith in Jesus. I think his mom had come to faith in Jesus, if I'm remembering their stories right. So we had an event, and I, I approached this guy and was seeking to have a gospel conversation with him. And I, I, barely got, I barely got anything out of my mouth. And he said to me, sports are my church. So here I am trying to give them the good news about Jesus. I, I had truth to share. And what he said to me was, sports. Sports are my church. And he said it to a guy who likes Sports. As sports, not as God. Folks, this is tragic. That is a tragic response from this man. It's a tragic response in John chapter 8. And I think Jesus is giving them reason to reconsider. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, who can say anything against me that would stick in that I have sinned now remember who he's speaking to these are not his buddies these are guys who would love to accuse him and convict him of a sin so these guys are going through the rolodex of their minds because they really want to convict him of sin right now that's a bold question who can convict me of sin would any of you feel comfortable standing up right now in this congregation and looking around at your church family and maybe your biological family and saying any of you Ever seen me sin? I'm not asking it. I've got some family members here who have seen me sin and can say, well, what about, and I'm not going to give you any specific instances, (laughs) you don't need any fuel for the fire, but they have seen me sin, and they could say, "Uh uh-uh, dad or husband, and my mom's even here, so, you know, she could spend a lot of time. They're eyewitnesses to my sin. So, Jesus asked the question, and I'm sure these guys are thinking, you can hear a pen drop in the room, and nobody has anything to say. Here is, we have in this text our incarnate Savior, fully God, fully man. But don't miss this fact either, church. This Jesus was, is, always will be sinless. He is perfect. If he wasn't, he couldn't be our sin bearer. He'd have to go to the cross and die for his sin. He couldn't die for ours. But as the sinless one, he could go to the cross and atone for our sins. So then he says, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And then the answer, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you not hear them is that you are not of God. So church as we've got to close why should we rejoice over a text like this at christmas time because verse 45 could leave us miserable many of us in the room maybe were truth haters at one time and didn't believe jesus so how do we move from being truth haters to those who love the truth and here it is the father must draw us the father Through his spirit must take the blinders off of us. That we, when we see Jesus like these guys did in this story, just see him as another guy or a fraud or whatever. The spirit of God through the drawing of the father has to take those blinders off and we see the truth and beauty of the incarnate son of God who came to save us from our sins. And we've been told this, right? In John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is in the, written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what should you do with a text like this? One, you should believe that Jesus speaks truth, that he is from God. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So if you're really claiming Abraham as your father, which we should too, we may not be a physical lineage, but we're going to do, if we are God's children, we are doing the primary work Abraham did. And what is that work? Believing God. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the next eight days, if you watch Christmas movies, you're going to hear a lot about believing in this time of year. And I want you believing what is true. If Christmas is based on a lie, we have no reason to celebrate. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus the only Lord who can save us? And if so, we have great reason to rejoice. This season is marked by what many think is good news. I think I watched two Christmas movies this week, and I think both of them featured the song Santa Claus is Coming to Town. So, Daniel, should we close with that song this morning? I don't think so. Not if we want really good news. Because what does that song teach us about ourselves that we need to depend on? We need to depend on our own goodness according to that song. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. The gospel of Santa Claus is coming to town is not gospel. That is not good news. It tells us somebody is watching, and if we really want to please them, we have to be good. But here's my problem, and here's your problem. In and of myself, I don't have what it takes to be good. In and of myself, I have no goodness to bring before a holy God. So we're not going to close with that song. I want you not striving for your own goodness and left miserable. I want you to see Jesus came to earth to give us his goodness. The good news of Jesus is that our badness was placed on Jesus at the cross. And when we believe in him, his goodness is placed on us. And that's a goodness that I don't have in and of myself and that I can't produce, neither can you. But it's goodness that is given, we believe. So we're going to sing something like this. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, Here in the death of Christ, I live. Are you a child of God? Is all your hope on Jesus and none in yourself? Do you love him? Those are the right questions. Let's pray and then sing. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that Jesus came. Thank you for his perfect life. Thank you for his atoning death on the cross for our sins. Thank you for his resurrection and victory over death. Thank you for his exaltation. And thank you that every person who puts all their hope in Jesus Christ will be saved. Not through any goodness of their own, but confessing their goodness is not good enough. And Father, may we rejoice in the truth of the gospel. May we rejoice in the person of Jesus. This day, this season, and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.